and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 66, recorded on August 12th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And what do you say? Should we start things out with a little pie? Yes, Android version 9 Pi has been released, and it's powered by AI for a smarter, simpler experience <laughs> that adapts to you. Oh, I almost, I almost believe it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like all the features are based around this idea of monitoring what you are doing with your phone and making your experience much better as a result of collecting all that data and definitely not using it to sell you better ads or anything. No, of course not. It's all going to be private. I mean, it does result in things like adaptive battery that I think is is actually going to be pretty useful and perhaps the app actions, which could be fairly useful. But one does wonder what happens with these metrics, even if not much happens now, what happens in the future. But you know... There's still a lot of other really, really appealing features to Android 9 that I thought were worth mentioning. It now supports 802.11mc, which is a Wi-Fi protocol that uh, lets you use indoor navigation. It's also known as Wi-Fi Round Trip Time, RTT. It's a new feature that enables GPS-style tracking by determining your location within a building. Again, also useful for tracking you. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> All right, you're right. And facilitating turn-by-turn directions to help you get from inside the building to the road, which, if you think about it, if you're traveling, that's kind of useful, actually. And there's probably a lot of potential uses for that. Another one that I thought was good was lockdown mode. It's a, it's a mode you can go in now and disable biometrics, like face scanning or the fingerprint options, until you re-enable it. Uh, that's just maybe useful, again, for certain folks in certain situations. Notification channels, which is a revamp again to the notifications and making it easier to dismiss ones you don't typically want to consume. And the last one that I'll pull out right here that I just think is fantastic, and Apple needs to rip this off immediately. An auto-rotate button appears in the navigation bar when your phone is rotated to an orientation that is not currently locked to. So I just do this all the dang time. I just prefer to have orientation lock on so that way I don't have any surprise switches. But then I'll, on the rare occasion, turn my phone horizontally and sit there and shake it for a second like a, like a monkey before I realize, oh, I have orientation lock on. But now, in 9, a little button will show up in the menu bar. Where down where you have like your home button and your back button, there will now be an auto-rotate button that shows up. That is going to be really useful when it does finally roll out to everybody. Oh, and one last bonus extra feature I liked a lot, HTTPS by default. Yeah, some of it's good, but um, what about this hand-holding stuff where they talk about, like, at the end of the day, it's going to go grayscale and tell you that you've had enough of using your phone and, um, you know, you can set timeouts for apps and stuff. That, to me, if you need a phone to tell you to do that stuff, then maybe just get a dumb phone or something. Digital well-being is what they're calling that feature. They're launching it first on the Pixel phones. And I, I do follow what you're saying, like the grayscale mode, the timers that show you how much time you spent in the apps. I, I don't really quite get the idea here. Here we're going to build these super attractive devices that have all these great features, and then we're going to build in features to prevent you from using it. So the incentive seems off from Google's standpoint, and the incentive seems off from the user's standpoint. Why are you spending all this money and time and paying for subscription services for these devices if you're preventing yourself from using them? And if you can't self-meter, there's probably something else going on there. That's my personal opinion. But I had a conversation about this in Linux Unplugged last week, and I did have a couple people in the mobile room chime up and say, I actually could really use these features. I do need a bit of a nudge to tell me to take a break. I won't do it otherwise. And so 
I, I think it's not that bad. I'll tell you the scuttlebutt is that it's the boards of these companies that are forcing them to do these things to try to combat the addictive narratives that are starting to propagate around these devices and the services that people use on these devices. So to combat the addictive narrative, they're going with these well-being features. That's the rumors. Yeah, not to mention combating potential future regulation where they'll be forced to do it. Why not do it before there's legislation that makes you? Yeah, you know, that could be it. And and maybe it's something that's not even specific yet, but they could just see coming down the road. And so they figured tackle it now and bake it and get it right. And for Google, at least, it's probably going to be an avenue of a great bunch of insight for them. So yay. One other interesting aspect of the Android 9 rollout is there were more OEMs that participated in the beta program. So it's not really just the Pixel devices. Pretty soon, some Sony devices, Yaomi, HMD Mobile, OnePlus, and the Essential phone will also receive updates this fall to Android P. So that's nice to see that some other manufacturers have been included in this process. It's still a bit of a, of a code dump approach to Android development, but expanding that official beta program is definitely good for consumers. Well, I'll be interested in this as soon as there's a lineage version for my phone. But until then, not that interested. Uh, the navigation changes I'm not interested in at all. They're talking about removing the back button and having that only show up when you need it and there's some potentially pretty wacky UI or UX changes, which I'm just not enthused about whatsoever. And I'm really hoping will stay optional forever. I imagine they will for a while. I think I have a different perspective on them just because they've been pretty successful on the iPhone 10. I, for a long time, have felt that if UI elements aren't discoverable, if you can't see them on the screen, they're not going to get used by users. Hidden gestures just get left unused. But if you can kind of build in a routine around a couple of them, they do make for using your device a little bit faster. The task switcher on the iPhone X is killer. You can flip through applications as fast as your thumb can move. And I think bringing that to Android, I'd use it. Okay, well, that's enough about Android Linux. Let's talk about some proper GNU slash Linux and uh, hardware stuff. So you are pretty much going to buy a ThinkPad because of this next story. Yeah, that T480 is looking so sweet right now, and that's because Lenovo has joined LVFS. That's the project that we love. It's the Linux vendor firmware service, and it gives Linux users feature parity with MacBooks and Windows users for firmware updates. UEFI updates, Intel microcode updates, they come right down to traditional software update channels like GNOME Software, or very soon, Plasma Discover. And this is a big, big milestone for Lenovo because it has been a major standout feature of my XPS 13. I think it's been a fantastic aspect of that little box the entire time I've owned it. I've really advocated other hardware OEMs do this as well because it's a good experience and it keeps people secure. It's interesting to see Lenovo doing this when you don't really consider them to be a big player in the Linux marketplace, though. Well, it's funny that when Richard Hughes wrote his blog post about this on the GNOME blog, uh, he says, if anyone from HP is reading this, you're now officially late. So, um, yeah, he's kind of looking at them saying you should join as well. But it's interesting that he also talked about how they kind of uh, had to bend over backwards for Lenovo here. They made it a little bit awkward for them. Um, it's good that it's finally sorted out and they're finally uh, on board with it. But it seems like they had quite specific stipulations there. Yeah, they talk about working on their back end to bring Lenovo in. They talk about some changes they had to make to FW Update and FW Update. And even some changes to the actual LVFS admin portal itself for very vendor-specific reasons. But that strikes me as part of this process. 
Yeah, I suppose we're used to this kind of open source collaboration type attitude where people just get on with it. But we're talking about corporate entities here that can't just do things like this on a whim. There has to be a process. So I suppose it's fair enough. And the the headline is, at least they're part of it now, even if it took a long time and was quite an effort to make it happen. There are a couple of exceptions to this list. Uh, anything really pre-UEFI is not supported. The yoga line of products is not supported. It's your ThinkPads primarily. But some of the more beloved and famous ThinkPads are on this list, including the T480s, the X1 Carbon, and um, the P-series of ThinkPads. Those are all really great laptops. And the ThinkPad X1 Yoga is on the list as well. So check this. We'll have it linked in the show notes if this applies to you. It also, this list includes all of the other manufacturers. It's a very extensive list now that are in the LVFS project. So check that out at linuxactionnews.com slash 66. Well, speaking of Richard Hughes, there's another post from him on the GNOME blog this week about automatic updates for flat packs. Now, before you panic, this will be a setting that you can turn off in GNOME software if you do not want auto-updates. I know one of the first comments that I saw was, I'm on a mobile connection. Yeah, I I feel you on that one. Don't worry, you'll be able to turn this off. This is also bringing feature parity to a similar function with Snap packages where they update every 24 hours. And you have to remember, these are all confined applications. They exist in their own little space. They don't really touch the rest of your system. They're not dependent on the libraries on your system. They don't update the other libraries on your system. So it's been pretty minimal impact on all of my systems that have Snaps. So I'd probably use this on the Flatpak side. And I like that they make it easy to turn it off. They've also announced some other improvements coming along to GNOME software. Seems like some good stuff is coming down the pipe. Yeah, specifically, there's a new free desktop runtime for Flatpaks, version 18.08. Yeah, Alexander Larson is making news this week. He's a Red Hat employee who has outlined a new runtime option for Flatpak. The free desktop SDK is a collection of things like Python, uh, SQLite, SDL, Vulkan, specifically Vulkan 1.173 for those of you who care, OpenSSL, and etc. A bunch of libraries and tools that you could use as a base system. It was asked if maybe it would be better if this was based off of more mainstream distribution as a runtime, so like a Debian runtime or a Fedora runtime. But the whole point with the free desktop SDK runtime is it's sort of vendor neutral. It's got a collection of some of the best of open source that you can then use to build your application on top of. I, I like that idea. I think that, if, especially for Flatpak, I think that works pretty well. There's different options, but I think that works pretty well. And in a way, that makes Flatpak stand out as opposed to Snaps, because with Snaps, you've got the specific Ubuntu runtime, or this week now we've got the Fedora runtime. And to have something that is distro agnostic, I think makes it more appealing to developers. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And I think that's their theory as well. I would like to see this play out. And that's why I like that we have two approaches right now. Because with the Snap approach, I could see that also being more appealing to developers you could go with a Debian runtime or a Fedora runtime or an Ubuntu runtime. And those are environments you're familiar with. Maybe you've already developed some software in those environments. Maybe you already have a few things banged out that you're, you're running on your own local Ubuntu desktop. So being able to start and work with something you already know as a runtime could actually be more advantageous in the marketplace when you look at the way developers actually work. We won't really know until we just we just sit back and watch. The end users don't really have to worry about it either way. Whichever runtime the developers are using, they don't really have to care about. The snaps or the flat packs will just install them. 
And a lot of people are kind of waiting for a winner of this war between Snaps and Flatpak, but it's just not like that at all, is it? That's not how open source works. We're not going to end up with one standard. We're just going to have two competing standards that both work equally well. Dio.co slash action. That's where you go to get a $100 credit over a digital ocean. And every system you deploy has enterprise-grade SSDs, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors, and yes, data centers all over the world. My favorite thing about DigitalOcean is their dashboard. I like to mention that because it makes a difference. The dashboard's so great and the rest of the system's so fast that you can get up and going in minutes, and that means you can go from, hey, I've got an idea, to, hey, the thing's up in minutes. And that's sometimes all it takes to actually get going on something. I think some of the best projects that we've kicked off over the years, really, on DigitalOcean have been ideas that we just said, let's go fire up a droplet and take a look. And then 15 minutes later, we're installing software and we're trying things out. It's so fast and so convenient that we'll often spin up a droplet before TechSnap and try something out that we're covering in the show just for research purposes. And we'll just do it right here in the studio in my web browser. As we're looking at a story, we'll just try it out and see if we can replicate the same thing. We can do it in minutes. And they have an API that's super well-documented, clean, easy to follow. Even if you're not a full-time developer, you're going to understand what that thing does. But the best part is that means there's lots of open-source applications that have already been created that you can go take advantage of right now. My favorite system is just $0.03 cents an hour at DigitalOcean. That gets you 4 gigs of RAM, 2 CPUs, an 80-gigabyte SSD, 3 terabytes of transfer, and it's all for $0.03 cents an hour. $0.03 cents an hour? That's... Ridiculous. Go get in on some of that with a $100 credit for new accounts at do.co slash action. Okay, let's talk about blockchain. And for once, we're not talking about cryptocurrencies. We're not talking about initial coin offerings and scams. We're talking about a real-world implementation of blockchain technology, which will actually make a difference to businesses all over the world. IBM and Maersk, which is the largest shipping company in the world, announced Wednesday a new platform called TradeLens. They've roped in 94 firms, and it's all based around the Hyperledger. Now, Maersk is the largest shipping company in the world, and you're probably familiar with who IBM is. They're going to sell access to the TradeLens platform. The selling party will contract with the customer and receive all of the fees and revenue rather than sharing it with the other partner. This is according to the way the system's going to work. It's all it's it's a new model to help companies trade and share contracts and IBM and Maersk sit back and take the revenue. It's built on the Hyperledger Fabric, which is a project of the Linux Foundation, an open source project of the Linux Foundation, which has some changes to the way a peer-to-peer blockchain verification system normally works. Primarily changes to enable some private transactions and to take some nodes out of the verification process. They're calling this an open supply chain ecosystem. And they say it's open because they're publishing about 100 APIs. Really, it's just a business-to-business transaction enabler that IBM and Maersk are going to make a bunch of money off of, and they've used the Hyperledger fabric to enable it. It is, like you say, though, a real-world use of blockchain, and it's at a massive scale already. It's funny that when I read this story, only minutes before I'd been talking to some friends about blockchain hype and how 
my example of what a great implementation of it would be would be for a logistics company. And then boom, I read this headline, read the article, and then sent them a link to it. It's so easy to dismiss blockchain stories because that same day I I kept an eye out and I counted four or five other blockchain-based stories which were just ICO stuff and just hype. Whereas this to me is an actual concrete example of what that hype is actually all about. The blockchain is basically just a database, but it's distributed, it's cryptographically signed, so you know that no one can mess with it. It's automatically backed up to wherever you want it to be. It's just a next generation database, really, when you think about it. That's how I've thought about it for a while. And that's why I've always thought it'll be a moneymaker. It'll just be in really boring ways that it's a moneymaker. And it does strike me that it could be like this fundamental enabler of transactions between shipping companies and banking companies and technology companies. And we don't really know the original author. Satoshi Nakamoto is still unidentified. And we're just proceeding right along. I think that's fascinating. Well, I'll tell you what's going to be fascinating, watching you scramble to try and replace Dropbox, which you're going to have to do very soon. So angry this week. I always knew this day was coming. I've known this day was coming. And now it has arrived on, well, it will arrive on November 7th, 2018. Dropbox is screwing over all Linux users who are not on straight extended four. If you have an encrypted extended four partition, you're out of here. If you use ButterFS, you're out of here. If you use XFS, ZFS, you're out of here. They write in their form post, this is by uh, community moderator Jay over at the Dropbox form. He says, we're ending support for Dropbox syncing to drives with certain uncommon file systems. The supported file systems are now going to be NTFS for Windows, HFS Plus or APFS for the Mac, and Extended 4 for Linux. A supported file system is required as Dropbox relies on extended attributes to identify files in the Dropbox folder and keep them in sync. We will keep supporting only the most common file systems that support extended attributes so we can ensure stability and a consistent experience. I'm not buying this, Joe. Um, all right, ButterFS, we can let that go. ZFS, probably not huge for desktop Linux. But XFS, I think, is one of the unsung heroes of the Linux file systems. I've literally been using XFS since the early 2000s, and it was one of the file systems I chose initially because it supported extended attributes, and I needed that to have feature parity on my Samba servers with NTFS. And to say that XFS isn't a mainstream file system, it was introduced with IRIX in 1994. And it is still a very actively developed file system, even, even more so in the last few years, with incredibly great features being added to it still. And this is just going to force my hand. I will have to cancel my Dropbox account. I will have to move to something else. I have been spinning up a Nextcloud instance for a couple of years now, testing it lightly. Uh, of course, we've experimented with C-File and a lot of other little backend things that are you know, just simpler, like rsync jobs and whatnot. So there's a whole range of different solutions I've experimented with, and I'll just pick the one that's sort of done the best and move. But it's pretty disappointing because there are some people I work with remotely that have this really integrated into their workflow that will have to also make changes. And you always feel like a jerk when you have to ask somebody to change the way they work. Or like when you forced me to use Dropbox in the first place. Better than Google Drive. 
<laughs> At least this has a client. It has a client. Well, not for me. I've never installed the client. I just use the website. So I could keep using this exactly as I have been. I know, Joe. Oh, I know. I am aware. And it drives me crazy that this that this even went somewhat in your direction because you've been giving me a hard time about it for <laughs> weeks and months. But the truth is, it is a good service. But the reality is, Linux users just don't represent a large enough portion of the market to really force these guys to work hard for us. And if you don't have a company that's committed and they don't have a large enough user base that makes up their revenue for it, they're just going to constantly be screwing us over. And the only real long-term solution, we all know it, is to use free software solutions. It's just sometimes the sauce is harder to get off than you expect. Well, yeah, definitely. And you talk about XFS being a mainstream file system, but are there any mainstream distros that default to it? Or do you have to format your own partitions and specify XFS? As far as I know, they all use, well, SUSE and stuff uses ButterFS and Fedora's got its own complicated stuff, but the likes of Ubuntu defaults to ext 4 So in reality, I don't think that many people are going to be affected by this. If you are a standard user, then you're going to be using the ext 4 anyway. Well, don't forget, it's also if you have an extended for encrypted home partition, which a lot of people do. Some distributions do that by default now even. Well, there's always a website. You can always fire up Firefox and use completely free software to <laughs> interface with their proprietary backend. Yeah, it's definitely time to switch to something else. I had tried to make a switch once before, and it went horribly wrong, almost resulted in dramatic data loss. But this time, there is a serious incentive, that November 7th deadline. Well, I'm sure that you can embrace open source because even Hollywood can. It's about time. We know it's always been behind the scenes. You hear little reports here and there about how Linux or open source was involved in the production of some big Hollywood blockbuster. Well, now the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, that's the organization behind the Oscars, announced that it has partnered with the Linux Foundation to launch the Academy Software Foundation, a new open source foundation for developers in the motion picture and media space. And this is... A lot cooler than I initially thought it was. This is sort of the perfect match of a bunch of people that have been underrepresented inside media production houses and the Linux Foundation, who will be running admin for infrastructure, for collecting code, checking out licenses, submitting them to GitHub, bringing stewardship to projects that have been maybe maintained by some gal in a corner of an office somewhere or some guy in the basement. They will now be submitted up to the Linux Foundation. They'll review them. They'll check through them. They'll make sure that everything's documented, the license stuff is right, and then publish them up to GitHub. This is sort of great, Joe. I see a lot of people being surprised by this. And for me, it wasn't a huge surprise. Hollywood, the, the motion picture industry, the TV industry, it's all an industry, right? They're there to make money. And what do industries do? They choose pragmatic ways to make more money. And open source has spread like wildfire over the last 10 or 15 years into all industries because it's just better at certain things. And it's just a pragmatic approach here. And we're not talking about free software. There was no mention of that at all, was there? This was all open source. Yeah, yeah. And it's just yet another industry embracing a pragmatic approach to make more money. 
According to a survey by the Academy, 84% of that industry uses open source software already, mostly for animation and visual effects. And there's a quote in here by the chief technology officer of Walt Disney Animations, and he says, By increasing collaboration within our industry, it allows us to pool our efforts to a common foundation of technologies, drive new standards for interoperability, and increase the pace of innovation. I like all those statements, and I did some investigation into how this is going to work structurally and practically, and it's it's pretty solid. It started really as a conversation between a couple of media companies and the Linux Foundation just asking for help. Hey, we've got ourselves a real mess here. Can you give us some advice on how to dig ourselves out of this? And over eight or nine months, it developed into this much larger relationship where the Linux Foundation, I believe, saw a real opportunity here to provide some back-end services to do the things that the foundation can be particularly good at that the artists and creators in Hollywood are not because they're focused on making movies and television and et cetera. And the Linux Foundation can be focused on the actual open source code that's doing that work. Well, how many times recently have we talked about this very thing? Um, distributions like Slackware that are having financial problems. And the answer to me seems obvious. Someone like the Linux Foundation or Mozilla, you know, someone who can take care of the admin, the boring stuff that you don't want to have to deal with. And this is a prime example of that. Yeah. I do think it's a, it's a bit of a milestone, it feels like to me, though, that the fact that Hollywood has so openly embraced open source in this and is talking about ways to collaborate between studios on that code and trying to break out where they've created silos or somebody's been patching something and patching something that hasn't been submitting it upstream. They're trying to resolve those issues as well. And the fact that's even on their radar as something to be concerned about, I think really shows you how the world of software has changed and how open source has really made an impact everywhere. Like That's a massive milestone to me. Oh, it definitely is, but um, let's not get too ahead of ourselves here. We're not talking about Linux necessarily, and certainly not Linux on the desktop. I'm sure that all the people who are involved with this will have been talking to each other and posting these press releases from their Macs. <laughs> oh, Joe, always bringing it back home. I, 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 you got to be right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you are right. But the reality is, at the end of the day, there's still open source code getting used. There's still software getting made. I think that's still a good thing. If they want to open up a terminal from their Mac and SSH into their Linux box to do it, or if they just want to build and run it locally on their Mac, you know what? I'm happy. Makes me happy. I think this is a good move, and I like to see the Linux Foundation doing these kinds of things where it's not going to be a massive amount of overhead for them. It's sort of already in their core focus, and it's an obvious area that needs some help. Yeah, not to mention all that Hollywood cash. <laughs> well, you can follow Who's Making It Rain every single week at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes about Linux, free software, and open source. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And consider supporting our entire network, the whole effort, at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Thank you.